This is the current federal tax developments for the week of July 18, 2022. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and this week we're going to talk about a number of things happening in the area of federal taxes. First, we're going to look at the IRS this week with their security summit releases encourage tax professionals to have their clients participate in or at least inform them of the voluntary IP PIN program that serves to protect taxpayers from tax-related identity theft problems where their tax returns basically a helpful third party files a, re- files a tax return on the client's behalf. This will basically discuss how the taxpayer can set up their IP PIN with the IRS and make it very difficult for that third party to file a return on their behalf. Of course, the problem is there are a couple of downsides you need to be aware of before you simply tell your clients to run out and do this. So we'll take a look at that. We're also going to talk about a technical advice memorandum that was issued that held that an activity that's treated as a material participation activity for five straight years under the significant participation activity test for determining material participation is going to be a material participation activity under the five of 10 year test in year six. And more importantly, for the situation that was involved in the exam that led to the technical advice memorandum, it's going to take those activities out of the SPA category. And we'll indicate to you, kind of explain to you why that could be a really bad thing and why it probably was a really bad thing for the taxpayer in this case, who was contending that that shouldn't happen. Finally, we're going to discuss here a case where a breadwinner in a couple, married couple, was not granted innocent spouse relief because she failed to inquire about or review the tax return that was prepared by her spouse, who happens to be an accountant. But she, you know, we'll talk about why she was unable to receive innocent spouse relief even though, of course, she claims, well, you know, my husband's an accountant. You know, I assume he knows tax stuff. Uh, You know, he keeps track of finances and that sort of thing. So, you know, why should I, you know, in essence, isn't it okay for me to just trust him? And then if it turns out that he somehow fouled up based on income that was his, shouldn't I get innocent spouse relief? We'll discover why that didn't work for this taxpayer why she got stuck with no innocent spouse relief. Well, let's talk first about the IRS's news release, IRS 2022-140. This came down on July 19th. It's entitled, The Security Summit Identity Protection Pins Provide an Important Defense Against Tax-Related Identity Theft. Now, what this discusses is the fact that taxpayers can obtain an IRS Identity Protection PIN. Okay, so we're able to essentially, you know, go ahead and obtain this Identity Protection PIN, which provides that sort of defense for the taxpayer in that regard. So what we'll talk about here is this particular release from the IRS, right? This is what they were discussing where they have this nice little news release that was released on July the 19th. And what this release discusses is how you can get into the IP PIN program 
as a taxpayer. And essentially why the IRS would like tax professionals to encourage their clients to participate in this program. So definitely one of those things that, you know, we'll be aware of out there as to how it works and, you know, why you might be involved. Now, I mean, there are some good reasons to be involved in this, let's be honest. It's not totally something that you wouldn't want a taxpayer to do. There definitely is useful stuff out there in the program. Now, the notice does remind us that we can't just obtain the IP PIN for our clients. And that's probably something that's crucial for clients to understand, right? So if the client wants to do it, it's not like, we'll go get it for me. That's not going to work. Rather, the client's going to have to go through an identity verification process. They can, and probably will at least initially, attempt to go through it online. Assuming they can do that and manage to jump through those hoops online, then not really a major problem and they would get assigned this IP PIN. Now, the bigger problem tends to come up if the client is unable to make that work, which sometimes happens for us. And if the taxpayer is unable to make this work, then it gets a little more interesting. And that's why you have to do this. If you're unable to validate your identity online, their income is below $73,000 or below $146,000, they can file Form 15227, Application for an Identity Protection Personal ID Number. Then they'll call, they will telephone them and try to verify their identity that way. Uh, it will be the next filing season when they do that, right? You can, if need be, you can't make either one of those. You can go get a personal, you know, get a personal interview with the IRS who want to do this. Now, as noted, the IRS strongly prefers you do this online and you do the secure access. Now, some things to know about the IP PIN as shown in news release. It's a six-digit number that's known only to the taxpayer and the IRS. It is voluntary opt-in program. The IP PIN should be entered into the electronic tax return when prompted by the software product or onto a paper return next to the signature line. It's only valid for one calendar year. They're going to need to have a new IP PIN for the following year. Only taxpayers that can verify their identity will get an IP PIN, and they should never share their number with anyone but the IRS and a trusted tax preparation for provider. And they note that the IRS will never call, email, or text a request for the PIN. Be careful because someone could try to fish that if they want to get it. Now, one of the negatives of this that I think you need to be aware of, and certainly your clients need to be aware of, is once you're in this program, you're really not going to have a good way to get out of the program. The problem is that because obviously somebody wanting to file a fraudulent return and who discovers, oh, I'm blocked due to IP PIN, would no doubt go on, and if they seriously want to get something for that return, or they want to use that return for fraud, they could very easily try to jump through the hoops online to somehow release the IP PIN program, or try to do social engineering by calling an IRS helpline. I guess the good news at this point is you probably can't get through, but if they got through, they would try to social engineer and get somebody there to turn off the IP pin. 
because of those issues, the IRS is generally will not let a taxpayer out of the IP PIN program if they have opted in. Now, I guess just as I mentioned before when the IRS has brought this up, it is an effective program. It definitely will stop the identity theft as long as the taxpayer doesn't give somebody the IP PIN. So it's very effective at what it wants to do. The danger is, is your client the type who keeps track of things like this will have this information. There are some clients I know automatically are going to have no problem with this. They're very good. They're detail-oriented. They will keep track of this. It'll work just fine. I have no problem with those clients doing it. But we all have clients that we know are somewhat challenged in areas like this and are unlikely to be able to keep track of this. They will consistently insist it was never sent to them. And, you know, there, there are some clients that if they say the IRS never sent it to them, you would tend to believe them. And then, you know, there are the other clients who you are going to be less likely to believe about that because, according to them, nobody ever sends them anything, including you didn't send them anything last time or they've already sent everything to you. And we've gone down that mess before. Remember, if they cannot produce their IP pin, they're going to have to file on paper and it's going to go through a very slow process. So you don't really want anybody getting in this who can't manage it. But if they can, yes, it's a very useful protection that they should consider. That's especially going to be true for taxpayers who've been a victim of ID theft. By the way, the other interesting thing the IRS does in this area, uh, or at least interesting in terms of uh, in their news release, is they said, oh, yeah, tax professional. If it turns out you now have appeared to have an ID breach in your system, that somehow you, you know, your taxpayer, the data on your systems has been exposed to the outside world, there's been a breach, you probably should bring this up to your clients. I would expect the IRS may ask you about that. If you are a victim of a breach, do you plan to do this? Have you done this? I would certainly consult with my carrier, insurance liability carrier, about what to do in that area generally, but I also suspect they're probably right that this is not a bad thing to recommend if you have that issue. And it certainly mitigates against, you know, if there is somebody that breaches your system, there's not a lot they can do if in fact all of your clients had IP pins. I just don't think that's necessarily realistic that all of our clients be able to manage the IP pin system. Next up, we're going to talk about a technical advice memorandum that came out on the 22nd. This is IRS Technical Advice Memorandum 2022-29036. Technical advice memoranda, if you're not if you're not clear on what those are, you haven't heard of those before. They get published in the same basic database with private letter rulings, chief counsel advices, etc. They tend to be posted by the IRS uh, on every Friday is when they post them up. And a TAM is effectively a variant of a private letter ruling that arises not because a taxpayer decides to, in essence, start the PLR request and send a user fee and go through the national office, but rather, during an exam, a law interpretation-related issue has arisen. The taxpayer and the IRS have basically agreed upon what the facts are in the situation, but what they can't agree upon is how the law would apply in that case. 
This particular case deals with the passive activity rules. Okay, so we're going to talk about the passive activity rules that we have, whoops, where we do the passive activity rules and material participation tests. So remember that section 469's passive activity rules. Generally, you can only deduct passive activity losses to the extent of passive activity income. You can determine if an activity, and the idea is activities are trades or businesses or their rental activities are considered what are passive activities. And every one of those is deemed to be passive. Every rental is deemed to be passive unless you're a real estate pro. And then we go on to the test we'll talk about here for everything else. And other trades or businesses are considered to be passive unless you can show that you meet one of the seven ways that the regulations allow you to demonstrate under Regulation 1.469-5T allows you to demonstrate material participation in an activity. Now, if you're a real estate professional, you are not automatically deemed passive, unlike most rentals. Your rentals are not automatically passive. However, you still have to demonstrate material participation. And that one's a little quirky because you either have to demonstrate material participation on every rental standing alone, or if you elect, we take all of your rentals, treat them as one single activity, and then measure material participation on that single activity. So it does get a little more interesting as we go on. Now, as I say, there are seven different tests that could qualify you for material participation. In this particular case, we are looking at, for this situation, the tests are going to be looking at, initially, what's called the Significant Participation Activity Rules. Okay, SPAs. Now, what an SPA is, a significant participation activity, is an activity that the taxpayer, first thing is they have to have over 100 hours in the activity. It also must be an activity that doesn't qualify for material participation status under any of the other of the other six tests. It cannot do that. Now, actually, we're going to get in a little bit fight whether it really is the other six tests or not. But we'll, you know, we'll talk about we'll talk about the tests in that regard, or I should say, actually, I guess this one is right. The other, you know, the tests in question. So the other six tests become one of the key issues here. Now the other tests that you can qualify under, uh, like if you have more than 500 hours in the activity, you're considered to materially participate automatically. If you do essentially everything in the activity substantially all of the work that includes considering contractors who may be involved well you know you'll qualify there that one's tougher to meet because you bring in a contractor of any sort and i mean when i say a contractor it's something as simple as let's say you're trying to qualify your rental because you're a real estate pro and you have a plumber come in to fix the plumbing maybe you know take care of whatever issues you have so you have a plumber, you have an electrician come in during the year, a handyman come and do a couple things. Those are enough to blow the substantially all in this category. Uh, you can also become, if you have over 100 hours and you have more hours than anybody else, any other individual, that'll qualify you for that one. You can qualify as well if you have, if this is a personal service activity, 
and you have materially participated in any three prior years. There's all, there is a facts and circumstances test if you can't meet the others. And then there is the one we're going to worry about today. And that is called the 5 of 10 year rule. Okay, the 5 of 10 year rule says that if you materially participate in activity in, in basically five, the five previous years you materially participated in the activity under any of the tests except the 5 of 10 test, then you are materially participating in that activity in the year you're in front of now. So year six, let's say, of the activity, you would automatically be materially participating as long as you had materially participated in the prior five years. So you'd be under that category. Now, we're going to get in a little bit of a battle here because the agent in this case is saying that because certain activities had been qualified for material participation in the prior five years under the SPA rule, they themselves were no longer basically significant participation activities in year six. Why is that potentially important? Glad you asked, because we actually have here something that will help you see why this is in potentially a significantly important issue. Let me go ahead, bring up this nice little chart we've got here. Now, let's assume that we have four activities here that don't qualify under any other rule, right? So we can't qualify. We have more than 100 hours, but other people work more hours than us in each one of these. And obviously, in these activities, uh, certainly we don't do everything because we've got other people working more hours than us, so we can't meet that one. Um, it, they're, they're not, you know, they, they weren't personal service activities in which we materially participated in at least three, you know, at least three prior years, at least the two I'm going to worry about here, are not going to be in that category where we did it in three prior years. And finally, you know, they're, they're not, they don't meet the facts and circumstances test. So here, here's my example here. I got a movie theater that we've had, you know, we've done for five, this is the fifth year that we've had it in here as a significant participation activity, and we're going to qualify for material participation under this test. And we have 120 hours there, 200 hours in the hot dog stand. It also made money, and this is the fifth year. We have 220 hours in the restaurant. We lost $80,000 in the restaurant. And we have 110 hours as a YouTube influencer. We're doing videos, maybe TikTok influencer. I don't know. I guess TikTok's uh, the bigger, you know, one of the bigger ones these days. You got to be an influencer on TikTok. But TikTok or YouTube influencer, we lost 10 grand doing that this year. Now, in this case, note, none of these have we done. This is, it is year five for the movie theater hot dog stand. But that means we've only qualified in four prior years. Now, in this case, IRS and the taxpayer would both agree that in this case, assuming we can document the hours in this case, and assuming we can show we don't qualify anywhere else, that we have here 650 hours in significant participation activities. Under the SPA rule, if you have at least 500 hours in significant participation activities, then you know, in your participation activities taken as a whole, then you will be deemed to have participated or materially participated in every single, basically, significant participation activity. 
So the good news for that is it means that the movie theater and hot dog stand, well, their material participation activities, that's probably not good news unless we're into the net investment income tax, where their income would qualify for that. But for passive activities, though, we can't use this to, to release passive losses. But the other two activities we have tag along with this with 220 and 110 hours. Those which have 90,000 in losses, we're allowed to claim the deduction because overall we materially participate. Now, the problem in the IRS view comes if we change this. And let's say that we're now going to say that we were in the movie theater and the hot dog stand. You know, now we're one more year forward. So the movie theater and the hot dog stand now we're six years in. Well, in this case, those two will still be material participation activities, but they are material participation activities because they fall under the 5 of 10 rule. That's what the IRS is arguing. And they're saying because of that, their hours come out of this calculation. So instead of having 650 hours, we have to take out the 120 for the movie theater, the 200 for the hot dog stand, our restaurant and YouTube influencer now are only remaining SPA activities, significant participation activities. They only total 330 hours. That means that neither of them will be considered a material participation activity for the year in question. And those losses, therefore, we'll say in this fact pattern, are being suspended. This is the situation facing the taxpayer in this case. Now, the IRS says, to justify the position they're taking, look, basically what's happening here is that, you know, the, the rules are pretty straightforward. They're saying the language of Reg 1.469-5TCII essentially says an activity cannot be an SPA if it meets any of the other six tests from return participation found in section in Regulation 1.469-5TA. Here, the taxpayer is treated to participating under the 5 of 10 test, which is found at Regulation 1.469-5TA5. Uh, since they were SPAs in the five prior years, material participation there, they cannot be, therefore, SPAs in the year under exam. And under their fact pattern, that would mean we would lose those two losses. We would have $90,000 of suspended losses, 40000 of income. So we'd end up with an issue. Now, the taxpayer, of course, is going to argue, no, 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 this is not how this works. For obvious reasons, the taxpayer is not thrilled with this working in that fashion. So to the taxpayer, we're going to end up with a somewhat different claim, right? The agent, of course, is claiming that it's going to be under the five of six rule, right? That's going to be where we're at in this case. So the agent's claiming five of six. Let me try to get back over here in my window to the right thing, get the right thing up there. So, of course, year six, the agents argued it's no longer an SPA. Now, the taxpayer, as I mentioned, disagrees with that rule. What was the taxpayer arguing? Well, the taxpayer argues that, you know, it says, you know, the phrase, as we all agree, if material participation for such year were determined without regard to paragraph A4 of this section, right, in this case, which is the 5 of 10. 
Uh, this requires a hypothetical determination in the taxpayer's mind of whether a taxpayer who is mature participation participating in activity in a given year is material participation tests were applied without regard to A4. And that says it must be determined without regard to the application of the taxable year and any other year that is relevant. So for SPA purposes, we would ignore A4. That's what they're trying to say. They're, they're saying, look, th this leads to a position that's undesired that you could have to alternate between the SPA test and the 5 of 10-year test, even though you have long-standing businesses and nothing changed year to year. And to be honest, it seems to make sense that way, right? If you take a look at what we've got here, it, it does make some sense, you know, what the taxpayer is saying. Because if you go back and take a look at our spreadsheet, right, and take a look at these particular issues. Look, nothing changed. We just rolled one more year. Nothing changed. We did exactly the same thing in each of the four activities. So they're saying suddenly out of the blue, we end up shoving these back over into, you know, out of here and blowing the SBAs, even though we did exactly the same thing, let's say in 2022, we did in 2021 with these activities. The problem is, you know, the, the basically the national office is going to end up agreeing with the taxpayer. What the national office is going to decide in this case is that, in fact, what we have here is the 5 of 10 rule applied in year 6. There are no longer significant participation activities in that year based on the text of the regulations. The regulation very clearly does this. The national office agreed with the taxpayer that this actually has never really been decided in a court case. We've never had a court case where this question came up about the, you know, you know, the makeup of the SPA group when some of the activities have been in there for a number of prior years and qualified for material participation in five of the preceding 10 years. Right. You know, we, we've never had that, that that would happen, because what would happen in this case, it appears, is you qualify for five of 10 years. Then we have five years run where it's in this category. The next year, we only have four years that we qualified under this rule. And, you know, so essentially those four are in there. So now we go back to throwing this back in the SBA group. And because we're going to keep losing a year at the back end every time, we will stay as part of SBAs for five years. Then if you kept doing this forever, you'd cycle back to having five years where the five of 10 test would bring them in and then five more years where it'd be in the SBA test. So yeah, that appears to be, they say, well, that's how the reg's written. That's how it appears to work. And we don't really have an option. The, uh, the National Office pointed out that why we did not have a court case that specifically looked at this, we did have at least one tax court case where the court specifically talked about the fact that the SBA rule, you couldn't qualify on any of the other six tests. And obviously, the 5 of 10 rule is one of the other six tests. The National Office also states nothing in the regulation indicates that we pull the 5 of 10 test out of the mix when we're doing the SBA. 
you know, the SPA rule doesn't say you don't qualify or anything except the 5 of 10 test based on the SPAs. So for that purpose, the national office says, sorry, guys, this is how this works. Now, of course, it could actually work against the service. If you think about this, maybe in year six, we don't have the other activities and maybe we lose money in the ones that have been in there before. Well, now we're going to get five years of losses for materially participating because of them being in the SBA group before. So it could work in the taxpayer's favor. My guess is more often it's going to work against the taxpayer in a structure like this. It'd be more like what we see here. So be aware of it. Also, it is a TAM, so it's not, you know, that, that just now is the national office's position on this. You know, for this taxpayer, it probably is deadly, okay, you know, in essence, because certainly you're not going to get anywhere all the way through appeals with the national office now on the record saying this is the proper treatment. Uh, you know, probably have to at minimum be litigated. And as I recall, when you agree to do a TAM, because the TAM is one of those where in exam, the taxpayer and the agent agree to take this up to national office to resolve the law question. Generally, as a taxpayer, you're going to do that when you believe that national office will resolve the law in your favor, even though you've not succeeded in normally getting the agent to go along with you or probably, for most of us, getting the supervisor to go along with us. And we don't want to take this to appeals, right? We, we want to solve it now. It's the one issue remaining. We think we can get national office on our side, even though we've not succeeded in getting the agent or the agent supervisor on our side in this interpretation. So we throw it up to national office and hope that they'll rule for us, in which case then, hey, all's great, we win and we're done. As it is, now all's messy. So it is risky to go a TAM route to agree to that as a taxpayer. Um, and in this case, obviously, it didn't work out for the taxpayer. Next up, we're going to have an innocent spouse case. This is a case of Solar versus Commissioner, Tax Court Memorandum Decision 202278. And this case came down on July the 18th. This case, we have an individual. She's the breadwinner of the family. She's a college graduate. She has a. She doesn't have an accounting degree. Uh, rather, in this case, her degree was, in this case, let's see, she was a manager. Uh, she essentially had a two-year associate's degree in fashion design. She worked as a clothing designer during the years in question. She was a manager for the business, so she had some business acumen with the idea in that case. So she essentially worked down that path. That's how she did it, right? Uh, now, her husband had a bachelor's degree in accounting. He was primarily a stay-at-home father during 2012 through 2015 tax years which are the years in question. Now, he operated a consulting business during tax years 2012, 2013, 2014, and a real estate business during 2013 and 14. Now, this is kind of interesting because she is going to claim that she thought he was unemployed. That's going to be kind of the issue here. Okay, what happens is they basically, they timely filed their joint returns and on these returns were signed by both her and him. Both of them signed them. 
Uh, he reported the income and expenses of the consulting and real estate businesses on separate Schedule C's for the years in question. And essentially, he had reported losses uh, from those years generally. Uh, we have these issues in regard. Uh, 2014, uh, he did report a net Schedule C profit of 1762 on self-employment return. Now, the IRS began with examining their 2012 return. They got notice of 12, 2012 returns being examined, and they were going to be looking at Schedule C gross receipts and deductions for expenses. Uh, the revenue agent scheduled an initial interview with Mr. Solar on May 14th. When he arrived at their apartment for the interview, she answered the door and told the agent he was ill and request the meeting be rescheduled. Now, this turns out to be somewhat important because obviously she's aware there's an IRS exam. If an IRS agent shows up at your door and says they have an appointment with your spouse to discuss the exam of your return for 2012, you are without question aware there's an exam going on. It's kind of tough not to be aware of that. Uh, they did reschedule the interview and it took place. Now, during the conversation with the interview, uh, you know, Mr. Solar, the accountant, asked whether his wife had to be present at the interview, and the revenue agent told him that she was welcome, but she's not obligated to be there. Now, it's not clear if Mr. Solar ever told her she could be there, uh, but there's reason to believe the way she acted about the returns in general that the motivation for this question might have actually come from her that she didn't deal with this stuff. You know, she has a job. She doesn't want to take time off. I mean, it, it's not brought up in the case whether that was how this worked out, but it seems very, very possible. Now, right, so, so we had this thing. We, we knew that this, uh, you know, you know, they then later told them their 2013 return and 2014 return were being examined, uh, you know, so they had this. The letter that was addressed to him was returned as undeliverable. Hers was not returned on August 5th, on August, in August 2015. Then they opened up an exam of the 14 return along with the 15 return in November of 15. So this came pretty quick. They mailed separate letters and forms for the examination changes to both spouses for the 2012, 2013, and 14 years. They issued a notice of deficiency on those years. Right and uh, and an accuracy related penalty for each year. The taxpayers did not dispute the notice of deficiency by filing a petition with the tax court, and so the uh, IRS assessed the deficiencies and penalties. In addition, they also did income matching on their 2015 return. So you know, in 2016, they prepared a 2015 return. On that return, they did income matching. This return was again prepared by Mr. Solar. Uh, and uh, they failed to have distributions from both of their retirement accounts of 6000 and 23000 6000 from his, 23000 from hers. They issued a notice of deficiency to Mr. and, Mr. Mr. and Mrs. Solar for the 2015 tax year, and again, an accuracy-related penalty for not reporting it. They didn't petition the tax court with regard to that uh, tax due, and they assessed the uh, deficiency and penalty. Now, a little while later, then, the taxpayers actually go ahead and file, in this case, for the, you know, basically, she now files, and so as we said, they had these years and they had this issue, 
And remember, she thought he was unemployed during this time, but there was a Schedule C in regard to that. We also had the 2015 returns. Now, at this point, she goes ahead and she files for innocent spouse relief. She files form 8857, request for innocent spouse relief with the IRS, asking for relief from the joint several liabilities for 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015. She asked for relief uh, basically on all three 6015 options, uh, 6015B, 6015C, and F. Now, C was kind of interesting because that only applies if you're no longer, if you're divorced, not living together. Obviously, they were living together and have been divorced or separated. So that one wasn't going to fly. But we're going to look at the general innocent spouse relief under 6015B and the equitable relief under 6015F because those were clearly things that had to go. Now, in the basic issue that we have, the only real question involves under 6015B1. Um, to qualify for relief, you know, she, there had to be a joint return filed under the code, right? There's an understatement of tax attributable to the erroneous items of one of the two spouses. That was also clearly true here. It related erroneous items for his Schedule C was a problem on three of the returns. And there was at least an at least, you know, one of the two 1099Rs was his. It was a smaller one, but that, that would have worked for 15 as well, right? You know, in, in these particular issue, right? The other individual filing a joint return establishes that in signing the return, she did not know or had no reason to know that there was an understatement, right? So essentially, that those are the three key criteria. And, you know, they, they agree the joint return was filed. They agree it is his income and deductions they were looking at. But the, and the IRS even agrees that she didn't know of those understatements when she signed the return. What the IRS did not agree was that she had no reason to know about those understatements. Okay. And that's where we get into trouble, right? D did she have reason to know? And the court notes that the relief provisions are designed, quoting from the Dickey case, to protect the innocent, not the intentionally ignorant spouse. You know, a spouse has a duty to inquire about the return and its correctness. You can't just totally turn over the prep, you know, the dealing with the tax issues to your spouse, even if you'd like to do so. And yes, there are a lot of people who would prefer not to deal with taxes. And if their spouse was willing to do it, they're like, okay, that's good. But you have to understand that if you do that, you're giving up the ability to argue innocent spouse later for the most part, right? They're going to have constructive knowledge of the understatement. This comes from the Price case and the Porter case will be our issue. And that's it. Now, she says she was an unsophisticated taxpayer who entrusted the family finances to her husband, did not participate in his Schedule C business. She says he hid his existence of his bank accounts used for Schedule C ventures, and she was not aware of enough facts to be put on notice the understatement might not exist. So she contends, and this is the test, would a reasonable person in her position have made further inquiries? 
Unfortunately, the court didn't buy that. In the view of the court, she's college educated, was the primary earner for her household during the year, and had some regular involvement in household finances. Now, on the date she signed the return, she claimed she believed he did not work and had no income. If that's what you believe, the court said the mere fact there were Schedule C's attached to the return that claimed to be his income from two businesses he was claiming to run should have put you on notice that obviously there are some things I don't know or my assumptions are wrong about our income, you know. And she knew that her income alone was not sufficient to pay all of their expenses. They were and they had financial difficulties. Now she claimed she believes that gifts from her husband's spouse, or husbands, I should say, parents, actually were what were getting them through. But the court did note she introduced no evidence at the court of any of those gifts. So there's not in. Also, they say the Schedule C's showed net losses for 2013 and 2014. You know, they're experiencing financial stress during years and issues. They're in the middle of a Chapter 13 bankruptcy position. They said a prudent person in financials, in deep financial straits, you know you and your spouse are in deep financial straits, would have wanted to be aware of why are we doing this thing that's losing money? You know, we don't have money to lose. You know, you shouldn't be operating these money-losing activities. In fact, they said, look, she testified that had she looked at the return and noticed the losses, she would have asked her husband about them. You know, so even though she did not review the returns, by the way, that, that's generally not a good thing because that's intentional ignorance, so it's done. She's charged with constructive knowledge of their contents because she signed them. Because she did not fulfill her duty of inquiry, the court concluded she had reason to know of the understatements on the 12, 13, and 14 return. They're part of the exam. And also, they said, when the 15 was turned was done, she already knew that the IRS had assessed tax on three returns, on three prior returns, that she had just allowed her husband to prepare and that she hadn't looked at. The court said, at this point, a reasonable person would have reviewed the 15 return, but she testified she didn't review it. She just signed it. So the court said 15 is not going to work for you either. You know, you should have known and done that. You were you were supposed to be aware of the errors found in those prior returns, should have caused you to look at the 15 return, and you should have been aware of the errors on the prior three years under exam returns because, you know, had you looked at the returns at all, paid any attention, you would have known that your husband was not unemployed, and that should have caused you to wonder about the tax returns and made inquiries. So claiming that, you know, he might have hid the bank accounts from you, but he didn't hide the actual Schedule C's on the tax return and the reported losses. They were right there in front of you on the document you signed. She never alleged that the document she signed didn't have the Schedule C's. Honestly, of course, since she didn't look at the return, maybe they didn't, but it's kind of difficult for her to argue that when you never looked at the return to begin with. So she tried to argue, okay, there is a second Hail Mary, though. Even if she knew of or should have known of the understatements, you know, the things that led to the understatements, she still could get out under what's called the equitable relief provisions, right? And this allows, if it would be essentially inequitable to hold her liable under the circumstances. 
Now, the IRS has published procedures on this that have a series of things they consider to determine if relief should or shouldn't be granted, and the courts generally follow that. Now, you know, here's the catch. The court looked at the various factors that they decided that essentially most of them were kind of indifferent. They didn't really lean either toward granting relief, not granting relief. But there was one that uh, did lean toward granting relief. You know, in, in this case, you know, they said she did not receive a significant benefit from the understatement. And they said, no, the only real benefit she got was the fact that, you know, they didn't pay the tax, but they she didn't have a lavish lifestyle. They weren't purchasing luxury items, going on expensive vacations. She wasn't living the grand life while there were unpaid taxes. So that slightly was in favor of granting relief. But they said the bigger problem was, though, her actual, her constructive knowledge, which had already determined under the prior one, that she had been so lax in trying to determine if there, you know, if her taxes were being properly determined, she just kind of punted it entirely to the spouse, that that argued much more heavily against granting relief. So at the end of the day, they did not grant relief under the equitable provisions. Now, this is kind of interesting because this is a problem that some people listening to this might have. I'm assuming most of you listening to this are actually tax preparers and a lot of you are accountants. Right. And, you know, it is something that if you are married, your spouse should be aware of that it's not going to be deemed reasonable by the court. Talk talk about admission against interest, but it would not be considered reasonable by the tax court to get that person out of penalties or get them out of having to pay the taxes if you're fouling up the return, even if the foul up is all on you. They have to there is at least the minimal requirement to review the return. Now, clearly in this case, I think had she looked at the return, it probably could have come out a lot better for her because I think she could have made a plausible argument that, well, obviously he understands this better than she does. And had she asked about the Schedule C and had he misled her, had he indicated and explained, I mean, she might have gotten out of this had she looked at it, but the fact she punted entirely is what went against her. Now, I realize you're a married couple. You know, your spouse is an accountant. They're supposed to know this. Um, you know, are you going to rely on them like 100% for this? Probably. You know, when I was married, do I, I suspect my spouse pretty much relied upon the return that I prepared. I don't know that she spent lots of time looking at it in great detail. I think she would have noticed if her W-2 wasn't there. You know, she might have noticed a few things, but would she have, you know, made any special inquiries about maybe whether I was missing something or not reporting something? It's, yeah, it, it could be tougher. You know, I understand the reason why our spouses might want to go that route. Just realize, though, under the law, that creates a real problem for them should an issue arise. Uh, it's interesting. It's an interesting concept to talk about now, not at this point, since I am no longer married. It's no longer an issue for me. But, you know, it is an interesting problem of raising this, you know, just in case 
anything would happen and we turn out not to be married in later years and a tax exam comes up, you may have been basically causing yourself major problems by not reviewing this return. So just kind of be aware of that issue. As I noted, in this case, Mrs. Solar was denied innocent spouse relief. This has been the current federal tax developments for the week of July 25th, 2022. As always, current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. Uh, you can email me questions, edzollers at currentfulltaxdevelopments.com. I also check in on the Connect sites for the Arizona Society, New Jersey Society, Minnesota, uh, Illinois, Washington. And I look in if there's anything posted on Idaho's discussion groups. I look in there. So if you're a member of one of those societies, you can post something there and I may be able to respond. And if not me, then somebody else, another member of the society might be able to respond and help you in those areas. So take a look at that. Otherwise, you know, we're done with July now. The next one I do of this, it'll be for August 1st. So seven months down in the year, this year just goes by so quickly. Uh, we'll see you next week when we'll talk about in the beginning of August, when we get the major league summer doldrums, we'll talk about what's going on in the area of federal taxes.